thanks very much to everybody who has joined us today. My name is Susan Smith. I'm one of the co-founders of Canada 2020, which is Canada's leading independent think tank. And in my day job, I'm actually a small business owner for a company called Blue Sky Strategy Group. So I'm very interested to hear all about this conversation today. Canada 2020 is partnered with the Institute of Fiscal Studies and Democracy at the University of Ottawa, as well as Global Progress to launch the Recovery Project. The Recovery Project is all about thinking ahead from the COVID-19 pandemic. What happens after, how we recover economically, fiscally and institutionally, and build stronger economies and better policy. Our topic today is called SMEs, the long tail of the small business recovery. Today, our conversation is focusing completely on how small and medium-sized businesses in Canada are coping with the major economic impacts of this pandemic. We'll discuss some of the supporting mechanisms available to SMEs, how different sectors are navigating through the challenges, and what the road to recovery might look like. I'm joined today by a fantastic group of guests. I've got Michael Denham, the President and CEO of the Business Development Bank of Canada, Dr. Sandeep Lally, the President and CEO of the Calgary Chamber of Commerce, Rodney McDonald, the Vice President of Corporate Affairs and Global Public Policy for Intuit, he's joining us from Toronto, and JP Gladu, most recently the President and CEO of the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business. And I think a COVID casualty, JP, is you are just about to start as the CEO of Canada's largest First Nations oil and gas service company. Is that correct? Yeah, the Boucher Group up in Fort McMurray. And uh, unfortunately, as you've alluded to, timing in life, I did resign from the CCAB way back in December, a long take up to bring in the new CEO who's doing an amazing job top of the bowl and just about to head out. All my stuff's packed up and uh, unfortunately, Oil price and COVID did not allow severe contraction mode. We look forward to the insights you've got almost from a personal perspective and as well as what you can share in the First Nations community and the oil and gas sector as well. Thank you all of you for joining us today and thank you to our folks online. Uh, we've got a good number of people on board so far and I know that that number will continue to grow over the call. I'd encourage all of you to tweet, if you can, at Canada2020 and at RecoverProj, that's P-R-O-J, tell people all about it. I think, Michael, I'm going to start with a question with you. Sooner or later, I think we're going to start to think about this time as BC, before COVID. And in the small business universe, uh, I'm wondering from your BDC perspective, if you can tell us a little bit what it looked like from a numbers, a GDP contribution, the sectors, what the employment numbers were broadly. Give us a little snapshot of where we were before the carpet got pulled out from under us. Yep. Happy to, Susan, and thanks for, the, thanks for the question. Thanks for hosting this. And I want to also thank my fellow panelists for, uh, for being here. It'll be, uh, I'm really looking forward to learning from your perspectives of the topic as well. So Susan, just um, our perspective on this. So BDC, we're a Crown Corporation, been around for 75 years, we have 60,000 clients. We describe ourselves as Canada's uh, only bank that focuses exclusively on entrepreneurs. We are well positioned to, to answer the question. During this period of crisis, we're an investor and a lender, and we're kind of staying within our swim lane. So we've introduced some new working capital uh, loans, some accessible loans. Uh, we have a convertible notes product for VC-backed companies. Uh, we're providing capital to, to banks to uh, extend their credit. So a whole host of things to basically get, get credit moving and make sure that SMEs and entrepreneurs have access to the, to the liquidity they need. But to answer your question, Susan, the pre-COVID, the um, role of SMEs was critically important, and frankly, in many ways, uh, it had been a great um, um, uh, point in time for SMEs. I mean, they represented about 90% of all private sector workforce, 50% uh, of our GDP, 
42% uh, of exports. I'm talking about companies that are below um, uh, 500 employees and about 21% of Canada's intellectual property. So huge contributors to the economy. Uh, and one point just to close on is um, one of the, this is a very small subset of SMEs and entrepreneurs, but um, we're a very active venture capital investor. And the venture capital segment in Canada, these technology companies, actually hadn't been as robust as it was going back till the late 1990s in terms of deals, quality of companies, growth of companies, financing, et cetera. So the pre-COVID days were actually, especially for this part of the economy, extremely good. And we're all hoping and frankly confident that eventually we'll get back there. Right. Thanks, Michael. I appreciate it. Uh, Rodney, JP, and Sandeep, before we go into the next question, why don't I give you each a couple uh, seconds to give us a snapshot of your organization so we can understand top line the perspectives that you've been looking at this whole COVID crisis and dealing with it. Uh, Rodney, why don't you go ahead? Sure. Uh, well, Intuit, which is not really a household name, is the maker of uh, QuickBooks and TurboTax, which are a bit more familiar. So I guess today I'm wearing my QuickBooks hat as QuickBooks is an AI-driven small business platform uh, that Canadian small and micro businesses use to manage their finances, to interact with their bank, as well as um, their money in, money out uh, insights that are all provided for them uh, through, through our platform. So that actually, that product uh, has over 600,000 Canadian small businesses actively using this platform to, to understand the health of their business. And that's some of the data insights that I'll bring today. Sure, great, thank you very much. Sandeep, tell us, you're based in Calgary, who's really experiencing some tough times, a double whammy. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you to the fellow panelists and for having this conversation. It is so important for SMEs to, and for everybody to understand that they are the bedrock of our community, of our economy. And so for us here in Calgary, the Calgary Chamber is a 130-year organization, and our purpose is to nourish, power, and inspire our business community so that they can go and nourish, power, and inspire the world. And that's why we our mantra is it's grow time, because there is really no other way to go other than to grow and to move. But growth has to come from within. Growth has to come from within our SME community. So that's who we are and what we've been working on with COVID is around here for YYC, which is an initiative and a rally cry to make sure that we don't forget about our most vulnerable, don't forget about our small entrepreneur, our gig economy. Thank you, Michael, for the VC side of things because our innovation economy is how we see things moving forward. But coming into this, we were in a tough spot. And for 2020, RBC has forecasted that Alberta will have about 200,000 job loss um, leading up to 400,000 by the end and we will be at about 20% unemployment. Wow. And, so, and all of that is not in one sector. And I, and I think if your audience and everybody listening, Cal Calgary and Alberta is more than oil and gas. And we, yes, that sector has been hit hard and that's our double whammy. But our third piece is that we came in very weak compared to the rest of the provinces in Canada. Mm -hmm. That's tough, and we'll, we'll circle back to that. I'd be interested in hearing some of the specifics. I'm going to give JP a chance to talk about, a little bit about uh, some of the things he's seen, and I'm going to start off. Um, you can give a bit of your perspective, uh, JP, from as, in your former role at the Canadian Council for Aboriginal Business, but I'll ask you a specific question as well, is what kind of impact has COVID had on First Nations SMEs? 
Thank you for that. Uh, well, just to build on Sandeep, I am one of those numbers that uh, was almost employed in Alberta. And just as an example, the Boucher Group, they had laid off uh, about 500 uh, employees. And they were a team of about 1,030 or so, like all their executives. Uh, they reduced their business lines from three down to two. So it was a significant impact to that one uh, company. Uh, my former role as the CEO of CCAB, President CEO, um, we did a lot of data-driven work. The organization has really proliferated with the stats. And just to throw some of them out to give you a perspective of how large the Indigenous economy is, it's over $30 billion. And those are figures in 2016 with the TD Economic Report. So we know that number was growing significantly from there. Uh, 54,000 Indigenous businesses from coast to coast to coast pretty much competing in, in every sector that you can think of, including gig economy, technology, the traditional natural resource projects. And the other significant portion of the economic engine with the Indigenous communities is the growing uh, capacity and presence of community economic development corporations. I've got some interesting stats to share with you and, and, uh, and the listeners here in a bit. So there has been a, a significant growth, uh, which most Canadians uh, often don't witness or are aware of, that has happened in the Indigenous community. Alberta is a powerhouse. BC is a powerhouse of Indigenous businesses. And, uh, and, and, and there's, there's definitely some strong bright spots across the country as well. But, uh, you know, the barriers to a lot of communities, and our friends at BDC would know this, Michael would know this, is that getting access to capital is something that's very significant, a big barrier for many Indigenous SMEs. Uh, as well as getting the tools and services to help them proliferate and grow. And then, of course, human capital. So, uh, again, similar to uh, Sandeep's examples, uh, the Indigenous SME market definitely comes in with some constraints that limit their ability to start up and grow. Thank you. And we'll also get into what kind of supports are available, too. So we'll pivot over to that. Rodney, you mentioned uh, that you have some granular, you're looking at things granularly. It's 600,000 businesses. And I understand there's data that you guys have been sharing with the Bank of Canada. Maybe you can shed a bit of light on that and what you're seeing in the impacts of COVID on these small businesses. Yeah, my pleasure. So as I mentioned, the QuickBooks user base in Canada is very large. And it, it, when, we, when we say small businesses at QuickBooks, we really are talking about the very small. We really aren't playing in the, in the M of SMB. It's, it's really, you know, I think most measurements are once you get up to 80 to 100 you're you're touching the m but most of our users are really in the very small your your family-owned shop your independent contractor your you know your service sector guys gals who come around and do renos um you know i'm talking very small businesses and these are obviously the most vulnerable aspect and yet the true backbone of the economy and the bank of canada through kind of an informal discussion was looking for uh, data sources like QuickBooks data, like Shopify data, like Amazon data that could help them see in different terms than just relying on GDP data, which they get only really quarterly, to give them more of a live stream to see when we hit a bottom and when we start to see a recovery. And I'll get into more of this in, in the subsequent questions. However, one shocking aspect that came glaring at us from our very first data poll. And by the way, we've never done this before. Believe it or not, we haven't actually mined our data for insights, economic. And when we did our first poll, we thought, you know, let's, let's look at things like aging invoices, cash balances. And someone said, hey, let's look at the creation of records of employment. 
QuickBooks Payroll is the most widely used small and micro business payroll platform. And so everyone on this call, if you're Canadian, you know the importance of creating a record of employment. It must be done when you let someone go in order for that individual to file for, for EI. And in the first data poll, which would have been the uh, second week of March, we saw a 17x increase of records of employment over 2019. I mean, it was just a giant spike. And then in week two, we saw that come down. And in week three, we saw that come down. And then in week four, the creation of records of employment from our user base has returned to below 2019 levels. And, you know, I got to be careful. Like we're still learning how to pull out biases from the data and not draw too quick conclusions. However, um, you know, it, it, it appears that certain small businesses were super cautious at the very front end and thought, I'm downsizing, I'm scaling down, or I'm shutting down entirely, where others haven't. And so I think we saw that really fast bleed of certain types of businesses where others have held on. And, and we're, we're starting to see that more and more from the data that certain, certain types of small businesses are not only just not impacted, but actually greatly benefiting from the situation, especially if you're an online digital native. So I'll stop there, but that's just one of the types of insights uh, we've, we've seen early on. Uh, and, it, and it could be, and I know this is, we're going to get to a subsequent question around the government supports, but it could be indicative of the confidence that was reinstilled into the market with the wage subsidy and the small business loans that could have stopped some of that initial uh, knee-jerk reaction. Yeah. JP, do you have any insights on that from a First Nations perspective in terms of the beginning of the COVID crisis to the middle to, well, we're not at the end. Hope, are we still in the middle? I hope we're at the middle. I, I still hope not the beginning. <laughs> I hope we're at the middle. And actually, when uh, when Rodney was going through his figures, I, I started to put that in my, in my mindset that I would suspect, and my sister's a small micro business owner with a couple staff in Kelowna, interior designer, direct decorator, and she has been um, set up to um, um, through the emergency wage subsidy program. And I think that's, as she would say, saving her butt. Um, so I would agree, Rodney, I think part of that data that you're seeing below the 2019 is probably because of that wage subsidy program. It'd be really interesting to see when you do the mining uh, of the data to see what that actually looks like. Uh, in the Indigenous world, there's a little bit of a delay, and you often, get, well, we've been listening every morning to the Prime Minister and, and the announcements of the programs coming out. Um, some of the uh, Indigenous organizations like the Economic Development Corporations weren't initially uh, eligible uh, that, that's for the same emergency wave subsidy program that every other business was because of their status on, on reserves and the way that it was written um, because of their tax implications, they were not eligible. Um, and I've got some really great friends over at Miccosoo Cree. Uh, Sandeep, you might know the Miccosoo folks up in uh, north of Fort McCoy. Uh, you know, they were in a very tough place uh, on a regular basis. And they're like, we're going to have to take further action if we're not able to be eligible. Like in the million dollars plus is what they were going to be wow. coming out for salaries. Um, and luckily, the, the government did turn that around. I know CCAB was very, Tabitha's team was very instrumental in getting that uh, to the table. Uh, and again, I think that probably would save off in similar, I mean, obviously it's a different scale, Rodney, but I'm sure that was a big uh, reason why that they were uh, not issuing as many uh, employment uh, records. 
Sandeep, you painted a pretty stark picture in Calgary. 200,000 jobs lost already, another 200,000 potentially to come by the end of 2020. Maybe tell, tell us a little bit about the specifics in, in Calgary from a COVID perspective, what you're seeing there beyond oil and gas. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, just a little bit on JP and Rodney's comments about the, the wage. The other piece I would add in there is that we're waiting for long-term stability. So for those government programs to continue, because what we're hearing is like from restaurant owners and others is if I can open at 50%, but I still need the wage subsidy, that is critical for me to stabilize. So I would say just watch that in your data, Rodney, as that, that picks up. And then Susan, the 200,000 jobs that we've lost, um, RBC is forecasting that to occur over, over, this, over this period here through June probably or something, and then, and then ending the year at 400,000. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's still I, a huge hit. It's a huge hit. No, absolutely. And you know what? It's really the key here to, for, for us is that it's a service-led downturn as it is across the country. And for us, um, especially coming in with our oil and gas sector being um, hit hard and being constrained coming in. You did have your service companies, you had your engineering companies, you have our hospitality industry, our tourism industry, um, and then you have your frontline service uh, retail uh, businesses. And so all of that coupled together, along with our freelance economy, we have a very strong freelance um, economy with respect to innovation and technology companies servicing in and so with the government programs or even with the downturn they don't have their customers have closed up you know so it's if i had a book of work saying i'm going to start in january or if i was it say i was going to start in september even september is off the books mm -hmm. And so that's the conversations companies are having with us now is okay it's great that the programs there are in I'm not sure if I'm going to stay open past June because I don't have a book of work to go to because the customers I normally have are constraining themselves. So yeah. that, that's why I say it's broader than just one sector. Our health sciences, our agriculture, our farmers are doing well. They're seeding. Um, but it's hard to get a farmer to say things are going well. But that aside, for example, Farm Credit Canada opening up liquidity really helped them um, early on to see a line of sight. And so when we look at that, we look at the railroads being available to take grain and others, uh, pulses and things to market, they're seeing some optimism there. Well, I hope there's a glimmer of hope in the Calgary economy. It's been battered around uh, for a while now. Michael, um, BDC, much like the folks at Intuit as well, you guys get to see the national picture. Uh, maybe shed a bit of insight on the sectors that have been hit hardest uh, through COVID. I think there are some obvious ones, but we'd be interested in your insights there, as well as maybe some of the surprise ones that we didn't really think about. Well, when this, the crisis first uh, happened, a lot, of, um, a lot of the talk was kind of optimistic around this V, where the economy will kind of shut down, kind of bounce right back. But as you follow, no one really knows where we're headed, but when you follow all the various projections that macroeconomists are doing, and you kind of look, we're going to get back to sort of end of 2019 levels of output. Like some of those crossover points are now uh, getting into kind of late 2022, et cetera. So I think we've all realized that this is going to take um, a lot longer than, uh, than most of us would like. And what's instructive is every country is different, but what's instructive is you look at some of the data from China 
And they're sort of five months, if you will, from when things really started. So the equivalent for us would be kind of August timeframe. And look at some of the industries. And um, I mean, the, the brewery, brewery um, beer consumption's uh, just down to 60% of what it was. Um, uh, consumer goods are 45%. Uh, hotels at 33 percent, flight flight travel down at 20 percent, and the the growth lines were actually fairly flat. So I think the um, and again China is a very different situation to what we have here, but it's instructive in the sense that the, the worst of the crisis in terms of lockdown and confinement is behind them. So there is some I think um, uh, reason to reflect on on their experience. Uh, but much like Sandeep said, I think the, the sectors that are hardest hit are the ones that are going to have the hardest time recovering. So it is the tourism, uh, it's the travel. Uh, it's the food and accommodation. Uh, it's the retail. I think we just need to be be cognizant of that as we think about the, the many things that need to be done to get the entire economy working again. Let's talk about that a little bit, um, Michael. I'm actually going to pivot back to you uh, because I know you have some data about confidence, uh, where people how people feel, us as small businesses feel about um, where things are going right now. Um, can you can you shed a bit of light on that for us? Sure. So, you know, the, the, the data, frankly, that Rodney has is actually, given the, 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 the range of it, is, is, a, is an incredibly complete database. So I was worried as he started his story, it would be contrary to what we found through our surveys. But the nice thing is they're consistent. So every two weeks, we're surveying thousands of entrepreneurs with a standard set of questions. What happened? What, we see the same trend that, that, that Rodney actually sees more precisely than we do, which is there was a real sense of panic back in mid-March or so. But every two weeks as we do the survey, um, folks are still deeply concerned, but the level of panic is behind us. So, for example, you look at the, um, um, the concerns people had about the ability to keep folks on the payroll. 75% of folks were concerned back in mid-March. That number's down to about 40. Um, companies' ability to pay their debts, that was close to 60, is now down to 40. And I have the same explanation for this that Rodney provided, which is now that we're um, uh, into it, I think the most fragile companies um, have probably um, um, uh, issued those records of employment. Uh, and with the whole range of other supports being provided around uh, uh, wage, payroll, et cetera, I think companies are seeing there's enough out there right now to at least um, have line of sight to surviving. Uh, which again, in an absolute sense, isn't great, but in a relative sense, is huge progress from where we were. Right, Sandy, you wanted to say something. Yeah, I would um, concur that in our calls, that's what we're hearing, and uh, is the fact that there was that panic in March. But that's why I, I say June 30th. So that's kind of what we're also hearing is that, yes, I was fragile. Yes, I was stable. The money came in, you know, six weeks later, but I had a line of sight. But now my fixed cost, my commercial rent, all of that stuff's, you know, kind of sorted. What happens after that? So do I, there's almost like this like psychological go, no go that's going to happen in June because September is sort of that, you know, unofficial start of the business year. And so that, so that's what we're hearing in our calls and our, our surveys are out as well. Um, but we've been doing voice to voice phone calls with the business community and there is that June timeframe. Um, so I would just add that to Michael and Rodney's comments is that, June is really seems to be some psychological marker of do I go or not go with my business. Let's do a little bit of a reminder. I, I think that's very interesting. It will be interesting to see and what the psychological effect with people is at the end of June if, if we can't go. I was, I was speaking to um, a, a politician in northern Canada who said there'd been a conversation last week and some of our senior business leaders are saying we shouldn't, we've got to come back, but we can't 
rush back too quickly because we don't have the ability to fix it all over again, right? I mean, there are billions of dollars in supports, and I'd like to get into that a little bit, billions of dollars of supports that the government has put in place to try and help small business and help keep, well, keep people fed and keep people housed and keep businesses going, keep people employed. Um, but if we rush back too quickly, if we're not ready, and I think June is a good, a good line of sight um, as if, if we do the go slow, um, because uh, another, you know, a boomerang effect we couldn't sustain, I don't think, as a country. But let's talk about what is there, and that's giving people hope uh, or enabling these records of employment numbers to diminish over time. JP, you want to, could you speak a little bit, just to remind our listeners who are small business owners themselves, what's available there if you're a First Nations small business owner, if you're partnered with a small business? Uh, and then, Michael, maybe I'll pivot to you just to talk about a little bit about some of the things that are in place through BDC and others. JP? Well, it was great to see, um, and interestingly, the numbers greater than we've ever seen before as far as capitalization to support SMEs. It was $306 million that were allocated to support SMEs, the, which, uh, you know, again, just to reflect on my sister, she is able to uh, access that uh, $40,000 uh, th uh, for the Indigenous SMEs. I don't know if it's different in your world, Michael. Um, Thirty thousand uh, dollars, I believe, is an interest-free loan, and there's also a portion, a ten thousand dollar portion grant, which is helping those SMEs get through. Um, and the other thing that I think that really does, and often when I was a COCCAB, I would get, I would often get, well, what separates an Indigenous entrepreneur from those uh, that are non-Indigenous? And and it's that uh, tight commitment and proximity to community, and you can really see, and especially, in, I mean, I mean. Uh, every community they try to come together but first nation communities quite often you have nowhere else to go so you you are entrenched in your community for the most part and i think you're starting to see a lot of community give back support um and and you can start to see that uh, emanating through community and just that human spirit and i think that goes across cultures but uh, so that's that's part of but i think one of the challenges though on the federal funding was that there wasn't anything designated there for the larger corporations um as far as loan support which I've heard from some of my colleagues has been a little bit of a challenge. Um, but if, if, I, if I just kind of go into some of the stats that CCAB just produced in their survey, there's about 90% of them were pretty, very or somewhat concerned. Um, close to 80% of them uh, have experienced some pretty high impact. Um, three quarters of the SMEs have, and this is, this is no surprise, I've seen a drop in their sales. Um, but I think on the, on the positive side, and we look at the, the the, the indigenous uh, economic stability, or at least some some strong base. They CCAB interviewed 49 AE, Aboriginal Economic Development Corporations, um, and they have partnerships with a lot of non-indigenous organizations. And that's that's where I think a lot of our might, or a lot of our ability as a country to come together to work together. Uh, and those 49 ADCs, amongst them, there are 296 businesses between them. Many of them are partnerships with non-Indigenous Economic Development Corporations. So you can start to see that Canada's in it together, which is really amazing. Um, and out of that, uh, every ADC has about 278 employees with their subsidiaries of another 150 people. That's over 12,000 jobs within those 49 AEDCs. And so what, I, what really brings positivity to my heart is that a lot of those, and Alberta is a prime example of seeing where Indigenous and non-Indigenous people are in it. They're suffering together, but in suffering together, you also build stronger relationships. And those relationships, when you come out of challenges like this, will be stronger as a result of it. And that, that gives me hope. Good, good. Well, we need some hope at this point in time, that's for sure. 
Michael, let's talk about what's giving SMEs hope in, from a, a program perspective. Uh, UBDC is the focal point for a lot of the federal government assistance. Uh, can you remind us what, what's there and what's available for people? Sure. So uh, the, a lot of steps have been taken to ensure that uh, uh, the credit flows in Canada. So um, uh, BDC was, uh, was recapitalized. Um, BDC and EDC together um, uh, have injected uh, likely over $40 billion uh, through the financial institution. So um, uh, if you're an SME, uh, you should talk to your bank and there's an EDC guarantee and a BDC colon product that, that mentioned, but the banks take 20% of the amount, EDC and BDC take 80%. So it's designed to enhance uh, the, um, uh, the lending and the credit coming from the banks. A part of that that JP mentioned is the, the Canadian Emergency Business Account, which is there for all Canadian businesses. And the government continues to, to refine its approach to eligibility to make sure that folks get um, access to this. And that's up to $40,000 loan to uh, an SME. Uh, and if paid back uh, for a certain period of time, uh, 25% is forgivable. Uh, and then as JP mentioned, there is some, um, some work underway, some thinking around uh, bringing somebody to market for larger companies, the mid-market and larger companies, but that's still um, um, under consideration. And then parallel to that, since a lot of companies um, can't bear debt, don't want debt, the credit's not uh, what they need right now, uh, there's the, the wage subsidy that we described, uh, which is meant to bear part of um, uh, payroll costs. There's some issues around tax deferrals. Uh, there's a plan around rent relief, which uh, is going to be very important to a lot of companies, especially retailers. And at the same time, the government's also made additional funding available to organizations like NACA to support the um, Aboriginal financial institutions, uh, to Futurepreneur, to the regional development authorities, uh, and other parts of uh, the government to make sure that entrepreneurs, SMEs, have access at multiple points to what they need, be it loans, uh, grants, subsidies, uh, et cetera, to again, maintain, get access to the liquidity they need to keep moving forward. So there's lots there. Rodney, yes, I was just gonna ask you, are you seeing people accessing these or would, would you like to comment on that? You know, we don't have direct data into how many of our small businesses have accessed um, the various uh, supports, although we are prompting our users when they do sign into QuickBooks to update their transactions or to do their monthly bookkeeping we're doing a auto calculation to be able to say, you know, based on your inputs, we, we believe you do qualify for the wage subsidy and or uh, the, the small business loan. Um, although, you know, going back to, I think Susan, what, what you were saying uh, a little while ago, um, one of the concerns we have is that we're seeing uh, aging invoices become a real concern. And so uh, what we're hearing from some of our retail partners uh, and from some of our small businesses who actually supply the, the larger businesses who shall remain nameless, um, lar even large businesses are starting to go from a 30-day guarantee of payment to a 90-day guarantee of payment. Now, if you're self-employed or you're an entrepreneur, that's a death knell. And so uh, that's a growing concern with regard to the supports and, and whether they are hitting the mark. I mean, it's obviously an enormous challenge for the government to uh, administer these kind of um, outlays in such a short period of time. One area where we saw a bit of a gap was the requirement of payroll uh, in order to access the, the, the loan. And then the government, I think, also saw the light on that and brought the payroll requirement down significantly. 
However, there's still a large number of self-employed who um, retain daily labor. You know, think of uh, someone doing a home reno. They're going to bring in a buddy who's also an independent contractor and bring him in on the job. But that's not necessarily a payroll relationship. And so a lot of independent contractors are not going to be able to show even 20000 in payroll per year to access um, the wage subsidy. So that's a concern. I, I believe there's got to be a way that they can uh, uh, be a bit more accommodating for this very fast-growing segment of the, of the economy, which is self-employed or independent contractors. Um, and, and I think... I think the government was probably thinking, well, at that low end, um, those individuals, those small businesses will also be able to apply for the CERB. Um, and now they're bringing in the rent, um, the commercial rent uh, program. So I, I, think, I think it is starting to build out a much broader foundation. Michael, did you want to comment on that? Or? I agree. Yeah. Share those views. Sandeep, are you seeing that the the federal programs that have been put in place, I'm not familiar with what's been put in place for Alberta, but is it making a difference for some of the SMEs there? Yeah, I would, um, I would say it's making a difference for the ones that qualify, but there is more that don't qualify and it's those self-employed and the ones that had the dividend. So that dividend piece got, you know, adjusted and it was all slowly coming through. But in the long term, like the piece that's still missing is, if I'm self-employed and I have maybe or I have you know one person working for me or whatever, there's this assumption that I can bear more debt um, and I can apply for the forty thousand dollar loan. I can take care of, like if I'm running a company with one or two three people, I don't have the debt burden I can take to even maintain my own household, let alone save the other. Uh, the people that I have employed with me. And so that's what's falling through the cracks. And so what folks are doing, and they'll start to do more of is, okay, well, maybe I close my business, and then I don't service um, my customer base. Or do I now try to look for a larger employer, and then just really get out of the space of having a small being a job creator? And that's the piece that's going to be the long term recovery piece that we need to keep in mind is, if all these folks start to shut in, where do the job creators go? And how do you actually recover? Like for us in Alberta, we, we don't have any fallacy of a V or even a U, it's an L. We went down and it's gonna be a long way back. A lefty hockey stick for you guys. You know, and so that's why we're really focused on the job creators to make sure that we sustain an economy that ha enables more job creation. So the innovation economy, and so the folks that are falling through are the folks that we really want to make sure that these federal programs, you know, continue to adjust. And we're not seeing that happen quick enough for those folks. Mm -hmm. Michael, you wanted to jump in there? Yeah, and Sandeep knows this, but just to um, bridge a little bit to the um, other end of the size spectrum um, and looking at the, um, uh, the E&P, the oil producing companies in Alberta, Yes. Uh, given all that's going on right now, we've seen what the oil prices are. Um, what, what we're trying to do with, with, with EDC and others is to put in place enough liquidity so that these companies can get from today's environment, which is really, really difficult, through to a better environment, say three, four years down the road, uh, at which point there'll be more options. And over the course of this period of time, there are there is some consolidations, some strategic moves that are required. But the hope is that this liquidity provides 
at least a base platform of stability on which these companies can continue to um, continue to operate, to make their strategic moves, and as a result, make sure that the country continues to have a vibrant oil and gas sector. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we're counting on that um, as a table stake, actually. So thank you, Michael, for for highlighting that for our large corps. Um, yeah, that liquidity piece and the ability to see that through the next four or five years is a real, um, I mean, that's a, a positive piece that every Albertan will go, okay, they like, A, the country hears us and B, there's stability in this economy. And as I talk about those, those gig economy folks, those are their customers. So we need their customers to be stable. I want to talk about looking forward. And I sort of joked about whether we're in the middle of this or near the end of this or not. I think we're still in the middle, but it's time to start looking forward. And we know the officials in Ottawa, I can tell you from the conversations I'm having with people, that officials and government departments are looking forward. They're looking at what we need to do to get the economy back on its feet again, what kind of stimulus projects we need to have, what kind of programs do we need to have in place to keep people and our businesses and our small businesses going. So my next question to the group is, um, what do you anticipate the SME landscape looking like in the recovery phase? Obviously, we'll have lost some businesses along the way, but who's going to survive? What kind of growth um, or new businesses are emerging that you're seeing? What sectors do you think will be able to recover the most smoothly? JP, I'll I'll start with you and um, give us your perspective on that. Well, um, I think the, again, I was alluding to the economic development corporations, which are community owned. So just for listeners, it's, it's a development corporation. It's like, a, I wouldn't say this amongst my First Nation colleagues, but it's like a crown corporation that's owned by the community. And because of that, there is some longer term stability because of the transfer payments that happen to communities and communities will decide on where they um, uh, dispense some of the resources within five buckets, one of them being economic development. So economic development and development economy um, is is important. And what I what this has all brought to light for me, and as a business, as a as a somebody that's led business, indigenous business in the country, as well as being a now a, a small SME myself, a micro SME, um, is that this has brought light to a lot of indigenous communities, and I think it's also brought light to Canada as a whole. For a very long time, our people have been very much forced to the peripheral because of a lot of colonialistic practices. Um, and we're starting to see the acute pain of not having an economy and having our people not employed. Um, and we look at the stability of Canada and developing certainty around our, specifically our natural resource projects, how fundamentally important it is to make sure that Indigenous communities are empowered through an economy. As an example, when we look at the LNG project, um, you have one section of one First Nation out of about 20 that are pushing back. And the other 20 are, be, are supported because there's an economy, because there's jobs, because there's something in it for them, because there's potentially equity uh, uh, positions for communities. If those communities didn't have anything as far as economy, that project would be a l- incredibly more challenged, if not impossible to overcome. So I think this is a flashpoint for Canada to look more carefully at how we support indigenous economies, the SMEs, the economic development corporations, as well as equity positions into major infrastructure projects, as an example. So for me, I, it's, it's, it's a pause. And it's also a pause for our own Indigenous communities to understand um, the impact that they can be having in building their, their economies with their small business owners. It's, 
it's 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 an inflection point, um, and I and I and I'm hopeful for the future that we're going to do things differently than we have in the past. Yeah, hopefully we've learned, and we continue so. to learn from this. <laughs> I mean, if we don't learn as a country writ large on the business side of thing, and I think business owners are also learning. Ronnie, you're seeing people who have encountered difficulties that they never have, and I think as Canadians, we probably didn't realize how close to the line our corner, our local shops were, our local restaurants were, our hair salons were, and we won't know that till it all starts up all over the all over again. Rodney, who, what are you seeing, or what do you anticipate the people who'll be able to make the smoothest transition back into business in in this post-COVID world? I mean spacing in restaurants, you know, limits on how many people can come in through the door. What do you, what do you think? Yeah, look, I, I mean, uh, I think the limits on who can come through the door, that's going to be short-term pain. Eventually, that will be lifted. And so if we look that far ahead, um, I, I think of, you know, one of the stats that I've talked about for many years in Ottawa, which is that any small business who adopts um, a financial management system or tool early, early on in their phase of startup has a 44% greater chance of surviving the first five years. And we know that in Canada, actually it's, it's very similar in all advanced democracies or advanced economies. Um, about 50% of small businesses fail within the first five years. That's true in Canada, in the UK, in Western Europe. In developing economies, it's much higher, obviously. It's up closer to 75% in some of the places I work. Um, but digitization is going to need to be a central plank in the government's policy with regards to recovery. Um, anything the government can do to encourage the adoption of digital financial management tools, financial literacy, financial education, very early on. Uh, we know that when small businesses, they, they want to start up their gig, whether it's a baker or an electrician, they want to do that. They don't want to focus on books. They want to focus on talking to the banks or talking to alternative lenders and all the different ways to think about how they set themselves up financially. And once they get going, it becomes even less likely that they'll do so because they're, they're now in the, the spin of things. But the earlier at the very outset, if they can adopt digital tools for managing their finances, they have a much greater chance of success. Yeah, thanks, Rodney. Um, Sandeep, I'm going to combine the question I asked you with one I have online here. Uh, this question says all conversations, well, they were talking about saving existing businesses, but it says it looks like Alberta has no choice but to foster and promote new and innovative businesses, new startups and an innovation economy. And the question is, where, sh where should we, new ventures, turn to for help in a devastated economy? But first, I'd like you to talk a little bit about where you see some, the direction of some of these new, that these new businesses could be, where the opportunity is. I mean, if you could pivot your company into making PPE, guess what, folks? Um, we're going to need that for a long time. I think uh, more domestic agriculture production or better supply chain on that, I think, is going to be a big area. But why don't you talk a little bit, Sandeep, about what might, where the growth opportunities that you see are in Alberta, e-commerce, tech, new yeah. ventures, and where do they turn for help? Yeah, no, for sure. Um, you know, we've been doing at the chamber, we've been doing webinars every day at 11 o'clock um, with the business community. So two business leaders talking started March 15th, started with panic, but then they got into creative ideas of how do they recover? How do, what do they see in the long game? What are those ta table stakes? And we actually had um, Stony Dakota Nation and the Indian Resources Council. So like, 
it's it's the whole gamut. It's interesting how the whole ecosystem has come together. Construction has come, tourism has come. Um, we were just talking to some office uh, supplies, trust, all of that, all of those things. And everybody's got great ideas, but it does come down to your part of your your business has to has to have a technology component to it. It's your fail safe. It's your backstop. It's not anything to do with government funding or anything. It has to be a core part of your business model. And it goes beyond digitization. You've got to be able to learn how to make money with that tool. And it's a tool. It's not an, a competitive advantage anymore. And then the conversation quickly goes to rural broadband. Ooh, yes. How are you going to communicate and do this and have an economy that is an SME that goes all over the place without broadband that works. And we've all lived in different cities and we all know the pinch points. It's like everybody turning on the, the dishwasher, the laundry machine and everything at the same time. Oh, there must be lots of webinars going on because I can't see or talk to anybody. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so that became really critical to say the business model, what utility tools do I have? And then for the companies, the other ideas that have come up have been about scaling. How do I find new customers? If everybody I'm selling to is having you know, constraints on them, how do I find new customers? And in this e-commerce space, how do I do B2B? How do I sell digitally? How do I keep my book warm on the revenue side if I can't sell the way I normally sell? Uh -huh. so, Companies that can figure out how to sell virtually on a continuous basis and have a broadband or a digital utility in their business model are the ones that are going to recover and set themselves up. That Those are the ideas we're, we're hearing back. Or if you're a company that can teach people how to sell virtually or, exactly. as well. Yeah. As so well. Services. Yeah. And so... Um, so that's what one of our webinars is about, is how do you sell virtually and the chambers across. So I know JP's talking about economic development and chambers and all of those associations have become actually more critically important now as policy changes are required so that we can have a level footing for a foundation for growth of our businesses, which leads to the question around innovation in, in Calgary. Um, and I don't want anybody to think it's something we feel we had to do. It's something we've been doing, but not talking about. Um, you can't start from scratch today. And so um, we have uh, Amy, which is an uh, artificial intelligence. It's the third uh, ranked in the world. And so you don't just happen to have that, right? Like that's a commitment. And so I would say, you know, reach out to your, reach out to the chamber in Calgary or in Edmonton reach out to um, Innovate YEG or to Innovate uh, Alberta Innovate. We have Platform here in Calgary. We have Startup Calgary um, as part of our Calgary Economic Development Team. So everybody's already here. We have Creative Destruction Labs, which is something that goes across the country. So there are places to reach out, but if the listener wants to reach out, reach out to the chamber. We will point you in the right direction. We've actually yep put forward innovation policy. Um, but I do think if you're in Eastern Canada, it's like Mars, but we're, but not Mars. Like that's what we have here. And that's not the planet. 
<laughs> and that's not the planet, Mars. Exactly. That's in Toronto. And, and Sandeep, I think it's probably fair to say that the, the programs you've got in place, you're an incredibly innovative chamber, but in the other big urban centers, there are probably similar things in place for entrepreneurs. And then there's the Canadian Chamber of Commerce itself. If you're in a smaller center and you're listening and you're an SME, there's an opportunity to tap into that. I don't think you're going to turn anybody away because if, if they want to access your webinars or your programs, right? It's not oh, no. geographically limited, right? Right. Oh, I think right. that's really Absolutely important. Right, Susan. And that's the other beauty of this, right? Is everybody can have these. We've heard from people in other parts of the country, but the other part is, you're if you connect in and you're in Kelowna, like JP Sister, you still are part of the chamber movement you still have mm -hmm. full access to all those resources. And so that's what I would encourage people to do. And nobody in this country is starting from scratch on innovation. Yeah, Michael, I'm coming to you, but I just want to acknowledge one thing that, that Sandeep said um, and, and, and speak to it in the context of JP. You talked about rural broadband and yes. access to broadband. I mean, for any of you political nerds, hands up. Um, that uh, watched the House of Commons go virtual, uh, Seamus O'Regan couldn't get in, the Minister of Natural Resources. He was having a terrible time from connectivity. Indigenous communities suffer from that. I, 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 as a prime example, I'm going up to my reserve midweek and I'm setting up shop on a house and I have, if I'm lucky, one bar, not even, not even digital. So I have to, you know, I'm gonna have to figure that out. Am I supposed to do business with one bar yeah. cellular service? Yeah, that's pretty tough. And if you're a small business, you're trying to sell things and you're trying to upload your products and your photos of your of your offerings to people or you want to do a Zoom call. You can't do a Zoom call in one bar. That's tough. I know the government made an announcement about rural broadband next week. Uh, I don't have the details on it, but I'm sure you can find it. If you go to Industry Canada's website, you can have a look. Michael, I'm going to put you, uh, you've been sitting quietly for a while. I'm going to put you on the spot in terms of... Um, the sectors that you see being able to recover the most smoothly post-pandemic. I mean, I think the lights on the Canadian economy are going to be on a dimmer switch. It's not going to be flick on and off. We're going to slowly lift that up and, and, and brighten this economy. But broadly, give us three sectors that you think are going to, are going to be able to pivot well uh, post-pandemic. Well, I think the, um, you know, uh, can I just a little bit there? I think there are three, um, there are two big opportunity areas. A lot of sectors fit into them. Uh, I think there will be, um, and you see already, a real reconsideration of some important supply chains. I think our, our health services supply chain is going to be reconsidered. I think, frankly, our food supply chain may be reconsidered. And that'll have all sorts of opportunities in it for logistics companies, for manufacturing companies, for packaging companies, et cetera. And second, you don't want to get, do, get too carried away, but to some of the points that um, Rodney was making, the um, Canada has actually been uh, relatively... Um, unsophisticated in terms of SMEs going digital. And even though two thirds of Canadians buy stuff through e-commerce, only 5% of SMEs have a means to take online payments. And I think what we're seeing now is a, is a rapid acceleration of everybody recognizing the need to go all in with respect to digital. So, and you see all the data, just the, the DIY um, uh, food products, furniture, et cetera, they're up 3X their um, uh, digital transactions versus pre-crisis. And I think, that's going to stick with us. So I think there's a set of opportunities and challenges around these key supply chains. I think there are lots of opportunities across many industries to become more kind of digital and having e-commerce at the core. And those, I think, will be two kind of macro lasting effects, if I were to bet, of what we're enduring right now. So I have a couple more questions I'd like to ask you. One is an observer question. Dina Grazer, thank you for your question. 
what kind of continued support do you think that SMEs will need and should have access to after the end of June? I mean, typically our governments, federal and provincial, have supported SMEs. There have always been programs in place, never to this level, because it's about people doing business. But do you think the landscape's going to change in terms of the kinds of supports? How do you think wage subsidies are going to stay in play for longer, if they should? Uh, Rodney, what do you think? Do you want to give me a quick answer on that? Yeah, I don't know if this will be a very precise answer, but I bet you Michael and others will have more precision. I work in three markets, Brazil, Mexico, and Canada, and um, what I'm hearing in Brazil is frighteningly similar to what I'm hearing from my friends who have their own businesses, which is that a lot of really small businesses are existing right now on the good graces of their landlord, on the good graces of their hydro provider, their internet provider, their cell provider, their their vendors, their suppliers, and there's a lot of goodwill that's kind of going around, but it's kind of reaching a breaking point where it's, it's just there's so much knock-on effect. And the fear is that there's going to be a big wave of closures and bankruptcies in June. And so I think that, I mean, that sounds like a doomsday scenario, um, but I think what, whether that truly comes to fulfillment or not, um, the, the barrier for re-entry for very small businesses is going to be very high because a lot of debt is going to be incurred. Um, a lot of, you know, leases are going to have to be broken, et cetera. And so I, I think the government will need to conceive of something that is a, a getting you back into the game kind of um, support. Very interesting. JP. Um, one of the things uh, that uh, CCAB has worked very hard on for years is around supply chain, kind of picking up a little bit of what Rodney's talking about, um, but actually being very targeted in the way that you actually go to your supply chain. Uh, federally, this, the government spends in its supply chain less than 1%, typically down 03 or 0.3 to 0.4% of their, their money on Indigenous SMEs. So that has to change. There's, they did recently set a target of 5%, which would increase the spend on Indigenous SMEs from under uh, you know, $65 million to a billion dollars a year. If you have the great best widget in the world or a service, if you can't get it to market, and Indigenous entrepreneurs have had a, long, a harder time getting into a lot of the government uh, supply chain. So being very pointed in the way that governments actually um, supply their goods and services from an Indigenous perspective, um, because the governments are amongst the biggest procurers. If we can actually get every government to municipal, provincial, territorial, federal to commit to a 5% spend, that would contribute over $23 billion to the Indigenous economy, being very pointed. I know CCAB is still very, uh, very active on that file. Descriptive is good. When we started Canada 2020, our first conference was called Progressive Policies, Practical Solutions. So uh, it's good to have something prescriptive. Sandeep, on your end, what do you think? Um, uh, what do you think support, what supports do you think might need to stay in place for a while, if any? Yeah, no, I, on the wage side, I think that, that folks are really counting on that as a, as a stabilizer. Um, at what point do you wean businesses off that? Um, business is very much aware of the fact that, you know, there's choices. Like in our calls and, and our webinars, they come out of the, the topics come as a result of those calls insolvencies and restructuring and debt um, are things on top of mind of, of, of these business owners. And so they are looking at and going, 
if this stops, then what? And it's more debt and debt forgiveness and abatements and things like that are, are being talked about. And I think that's the, the policymakers and the government needs to be looking at the fall and saying, well, what are we looking at here in October? Because a lot of the debt and things like that. So that's why I think BDC coming out with a two year with a slower repay and an interest like that really helped provide some clarity. It's now a matter of trying to get to that, that funding, but can we provide that kind of two-year trajectory on, on these programs? And that'll help the businesses. And so, uh, because we're seeing the same thing, 2022, 2023. Thanks. So Michael, you don't actually get to answer those questions. Everybody was just giving you work for you to do. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. But no, I think those are very concrete uh, ideas. And uh, you've got some good ears here at BDC. Michael, uh, you folks are really at the pointy end of what supports might be in place for people going forward. You must be hearing things. What are people asking for? I'm, and again, not binding you from a policy perspective on a go forward, but what do you think people, what, what are people asking you for? Does it mirror a lot of what you've heard from your, your fellow panelists here today? Yeah, no, it does. And, and as said, people were saying there is, there is a limit to uh, appropriately so to how much debt any SME or entrepreneur wants to bear. Uh, and whether it's a bank debt or in effect debt from um, uh, extending payables to, uh, um, uh, to your suppliers, it is debt that has to get paid back. And I think there's a limit again to how much companies can bear of that. So the solution um, would need to be something else. Uh, but it's such a good question is to get to so many trade-offs we have to make, right? And, one, and the trade-off between um, slowly getting back into business for public health reasons versus going full, full throttle, which would address a lot of these concerns that businesses have. And then more macroeconomically, um, at some point, uh, the trade-off between uh, increasing the size of our debt for future generations versus kind of spending it now to keep um, enterprises going. One simple question that was asked gets into all these really challenging trade-offs that we have to sort through. Uh, that's just what life's going to be like for, I think, policymakers and engaged citizens in the, uh, the months and years ahead. Sure, that's right. And that's what this recovery project is all about. I want to thank everyone for joining. Thank our panelists today. I'm going to give you a quick, this is a quick go around this. I'm, I like to do this when I have a panel. I'd like to know what you're optimistic about. Ken Wong, who's a Queen's University business prof, talked about uh, survive, revive, and thrive for Canadian business when it comes to the COVID pandemic. So I'm going to focus on the thrive right now. What's the one thing you need, think SMEs that you're optimistic about for SMEs in the thrive portion of what we hope to get to in time? So Sandeep, I'm going to start with you. Sure. Thanks. Yeah, no, I'm optimistic because of the grit and determination of our business community. And we're all trying to lead with empathy and humanity. And I think that is why we will thrive if we still just keep asking for help, be transparent and agile. And that's one of the reasons why we launched a toolkit of relaunching your business. So it's available to everybody because it's on our website. And What's your website? Yeah, calgarychamber.com. <laughs> so <laughs> just, and it says COVID resources toolkit. And that toolkit came together because people were transparent, led with empathy, and wanted to have a strong sense of community. And that's why I think we'll, we will thrive. Super, thank you. Uh, JP, your optimism is focused on, tell us. Well, well, you know, we've had to innovate, we've had to do things differently, like case in point, what we're doing right now. 
Um, and I'm hoping, I mean, you can't replace a handshake uh, and time sitting around having some moose meat with your, with your, with your colleagues uh, up, up north, as an example. But certainly when you've got those relationships, I think we're going to do things differently, which is going to save a lot of uh, time and resources. But also, you look at the air, you look at the water, look at the animals coming into our cities. Hopefully, do we pick up and we you know, remain innovative in the way that we approach business in the future that we can actually keep a bead on the environment a little closer, um, as well as um, the life balance, you know, spending more time with family, those things that make us human that actually bring energy into our lives and we exude when we go out to do business instead of hitting burnout like many of us do. No, that's right, that's right. Rodney, your optimism is on. You know, I, I was looking at the stats that I didn't get to and, you know, on the, on the happy side, construction, wholesale and manufacturing, their numbers are actually very steady, holding very steady, declining, but not precipitously. The sad side is the personal services, food and accommodation have dropped 20% year over year. That, by the way, is the sector we play in, is, is your, your service sector. And I think those small businesses that are in the service sector are going to reinvent themselves through a digital lens. I think everyone that has pivoted to digital quickly is surviving, and they're going to provide a really interesting example that will start to create other new business models around digital that just haven't found a reason to, to modernize. All right. And Michael, final word for you on optimism. So my final words, this past weekend in Omaha, Warren Buffett had his virtual meeting and the big theme of it was never bet against America. So what I say here is never bet against the resilience of the Canadian entrepreneur. Uh, and uh, it's remarkable how resilient entrepreneurs in this country are. And you see every day you hear stories of pivots and new products and PPEs being made by Canadian entrepreneurs. Uh, and I spend my time with them. They're a very resilient bunch. So never bet against them. And if there's a way through this and a way to take a business in a new direction, they'll find it. That's what underpins my confidence. That's great. I like to hear that. I'd like to thank you all for joining us today. I'd like to thank everyone that joined us online. Thank you for giving us your time, your questions. Please stay tuned to The Recovery Project. This is a fascinating project launched by Canada 2020 and the Institute for Fiscal Studies and Democracy and Global Progress. Some good thinking is happening. Uh, as you can see, there's an opportunity to feed in your ideas. We have great ideas coming from our participants and great ideas from people who send us questions. So we're all about this country recovering from this nasty pandemic, and I'm glad to see some optimism here. Thanks again, everyone, for your time. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. Stay safe.